The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Grief, as we know all too well, can be isolating and scary. And we can sometimes further alienate ourselves when we really need comfort the most with our own judgment. Contrary to popular belief, the antidote to feeling weak and impatient, frustrated with ourselves, it isn't to beat ourselves up. It isn't to berate ourselves for where we are or even withhold our deepest needs. Rather, it's granting ourselves more compassion. Hi all, I'm Michael Kovnat, and this is the Next Big Idea Daily, the show where we offer up little life lessons in 15-minute chunks, hoping to make you a little bit happier, a little bit healthier, and a little bit smarter. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that can be painful, loss. Whether it's the death of someone you love, the end of a friendship, or a bad breakup, we all suffer loss from time to time. But as universal as it is, grieving is something we haven't been taught to do, and most of us are discouraged from even talking about it. Here to help is Gina Maffa, author of the book, Moving On Doesn't Mean Letting Go, A Modern Guide to Navigating Loss. Gina is a licensed psychotherapist and mental health educator, and she joins us now to share some key insights from her book. Hi, my name is Gina Maffa. I'm a licensed psychotherapist in private practice in New York City. A therapist for nearly two decades, I've helped people seeking treatment for trauma and grief, as well as challenging life experiences and transitions, as even positive experiences can bring grief. This includes work with Holocaust survivors, as well as being a clinical director for an outpatient hospital program specializing in substance use disorder. Grief is the most prevalent mental health burden people are carrying post-pandemic, and it's not all about death. Grief is a natural response to loss, but it's misunderstood as only a response to death losses. That's absolutely devastating, of course, and yet there are other devastating losses that get swept under the carpet, and it seems like society decides what is allowed to be grieved and for how long and in what way. This continues the stigmatization of grieving. Losses are as deep and personal as the attachments we held. After all, aren't the connections to partners and spouses, pets, friends, dreams, homes, jobs, imagined futures, communities, and so much more that make our lives worthwhile? When we lose those parts of our lives, of course it hurts, sometimes quite a lot. No amount of denial whether on an individual or societal level, can undo the very real pain. We need acknowledgement and tender witnessing of our losses. By disregarding non-death grief because society doesn't believe it is grief, we prolong and magnify its impact on our health, our well-being, and relationships. Even sudden identity shifts can be particularly hard to reconcile, leaving us with questions we can't immediately answer. Who am I without this job, relationship, title, home? What does my life look and feel like, both to me and others, when I'm not CEO, spouse, best friend, marathon runner, parent? 
Questions like these flow with abandon, but their answers are much harder to come by. Whether death-related loss or other types of losses, we are forced to redefine, reimagine, rebuild, or release parts of our lives and ourselves. It all takes time, obviously. But first, we need to do what many of us have been taught not to do. Pause, in whatever ways we can, and allow ourselves to feel, to grieve the loss in its many layers. We have to acknowledge it all and allow it all. This is how we clean out the wounds. Grief is often viewed as an emotional response to loss, but let me not mince words here. Grief is a full body experience. Our feelings aren't just our emotions, they're also our physical sensations. In fact, without us even noticing, our bodies can start to bear the brunt of our grief experience. We don't sleep the same, We find we're struggling with inexplicable pain. Our muscles hurt. Our digestion is weird. We're getting headaches all the time and can't seem to shake that cold. No part of the body is unaffected. I'm so relieved that we've entered a time in our history where the mind-body connection is not up for debate and we can have serious conversations around keeping the body and mind healthy and in balance together without it feeling like just another wellness trend. In looking deeper at this mind-body connection, we've all heard of broken heart syndrome, also known as Takotsubu syndrome, which occurs when an extreme emotional triggers the weakening of the heart muscles. This can lead to a heart attack, heart failure, shock, long-term heart rhythm abnormalities, and changes in blood pressure. All the more reason someone needs significant support after loss because the body simply holds on to so much of the stress losing someone significant to us brings with it. Multiple studies have shown that grief increases inflammation in our body, which can lead to increased health challenges or the exacerbation of pre-existing conditions. It can also lower our immune response, which makes us more susceptible to illness, as we may find ourselves more easily catching colds or feeling exhausted. In fact, with many of my clients, Being physically exhausted and finding themselves down with the cold are common manifestations of their grieving. Our bodies are wise, and they will speak to us through any means possible. Most times, the better we get at listening, the gentler the communications. But when we're used to ignoring or overriding its messages, the body starts to speak through symptoms that may bring real discomfort or pain, shouting louder and louder to get your attention. Rather than waiting for your body to produce a crisis that demands your attention, I want to encourage you to listen to what your body needs as often as you can. Grief takes so much more physical endurance than we've ever been taught, and I want to make sure that we bring this awareness as people navigate their losses in a society that just keeps on moving. Loss doesn't have to be traumatic to feel traumatizing. I'd be willing to bet that when I say we're going to talk about grief and trauma, that your mind went somewhere pretty catastrophic. Wars, school shootings, increased violence, environmental disasters, genocide, plane crashes, and train derailings. And on the one hand, you're right, All of those losses present an overwhelming shock to the system for those suffered through them. What I want to talk about, though, is something I don't think we talk about enough. 
which is the way that a loss doesn't have to be traumatic to be traumatizing. You see, loss of any kind is a shock to the system. It makes us question what we know to be true about ourselves, our place in the world, and so many of the things that we take or took for granted. For some people, loss isn't just life-altering. It's life-altering in a way that is traumatic, changing the way our minds and bodies feel safe in the world. When I was first studying this topic, we were taught, and I believed, that the only kind of traumatic loss was a loss that was sudden, unexpected, violent, or ambiguous. According to research on traumatic loss and the European Journal of Traumatology, and yes, traumatology is a word, traumatic loss involves the loss of loved ones in the context of traumatizing circumstances and is a commonly reported traumatic event. Well, it's a very specific definition that manages to be both limiting and maddeningly vague. Over time, I got the sense that, as a field, we were disinclined to consider the ways that loss, of so many kinds, could be truly traumatic for the person experiencing it. I have so many clients coming to me with their nervous systems in hyperarousal, feeling like they cannot calm down or ground themselves. It's important, then, to inquire deeper when someone tells me their symptoms, as I know there's more at play. So... What makes a loss more traumatizing for some people? Well, our history plays such a huge role. What's in your past will tell you how to perceive what happens in your present. And there are five key factors that contribute to a higher likelihood that loss may more profoundly impact your nervous system. They are the type of loss, the attachment to the loss, a history of PTSD, CPTSD, history of traumatic loss, weaker coping skills, and a history of high adrenaline or anxiety. Because of the increased prevalence of clients telling me they are having a hard time coping with the feelings and sensations of their loss, to the point of feeling like they are emotionally, psychologically, and even physically upended, it's important to me to help normalize the experience in order to help someone to move forward in a way that will most benefit them and their needs. To me, understanding what we are experiencing is the path toward the right kind of healing for everyone individually. We all cope and grieve in rhythms. The bad news is that grief just doesn't go away. There's no cure. We don't just wake up one morning, sit up in bed with outstretched arms, notice the sound of birds and think to ourselves, well, I'm glad that's over, and then never feel the pang of our yearning to go back or feel the sting that comes on anniversaries or have our breath taken away when a memory flies into our mind out of the blue. No, we are affected. We always will be, just to different extents along the way that hold their own meaning and rhythm. Given that so many of us are ill-prepared for the grief state we are thrust into, I find that it can help to have any opportunity to recognize our inner callings and needs. A way I like to look deeper at these tendencies is to see them as rhythms. Rhythms that change each day with different circumstances or reminders, emotions that spring up or just wanting to be more connected to the grief process. Each grief rhythm exemplifies clusters of traits and habits you may exhibit at different points in the grief process. 
One example of a grief rhythm out of eight I have created is the survivor. The survivor is a rhythm based solely on, well, you guessed it, survival. If this is you, your primary need is the continuity of what is right in front of you, whether it's pragmatic planning, taking care of the kids, being a caregiver to someone else, a job that needs your attention, or simply making sure you're taking good care of your own physical and mental well-being. Other rhythms that we might feel or experience every day, or heck, even every hour, are the diver, the mover, the compartmentalizer, the ruminator, the emotional, spiritual bypasser, and the quality controller. Each of these rhythms is meant to help someone have a reference point for what they are experiencing, as to avoid the sensation that if they are in the spiral that feels uncontrollable and terrifying, as grieving can be disorienting and hard enough. Having a sense of knowing what we can or might experience can offer us a way of normalizing a very unique and individual grief experience, and we can, in turn, feel safe enough to lean into the grief and feel whatever we need to as it comes up. The importance of self-compassion while grieving. Let's face it, even if we've been through losses more than once in our lives, we never really know what each new loss will bring our way. It can be utterly terrifying and disorienting. As humans, we have a tendency to look around us for points of reference. But in grief, it's so hard because everyone does grieve differently because everyone will have different relationships to a loss. We can be so hard on ourselves if we aren't feeling better when we think society wants us to. People stop calling and checking in. We stop getting those casserole dishes of food delivered. And people stop asking about our loss and conversation. It can be so hard when the world moves on and we are still grieving. We tend to feel lonely and lost, and we judge ourselves and sometimes even shame ourselves. What we need is self-compassion. We need tenderness, but we are always the last people to give it to ourselves. It will not take away the pain of loss, of course, but having self-compassion when we are in this dark abyss of grief can so powerfully shift our perception of our experience, just enough to breathe a little easier at a minimum. Self-compassion helps us to prevent the piling on to our already too heavy emotional burden. We don't need to compound the pain of loss with the pain of self-disparagement. Rarely do we talk to ourselves as compassionately as we would speak to someone we deeply care for, am I right? But the question is, why not? Grief, as we know all too well, can be isolating and scary and we can sometimes further alienate ourselves when we really need comfort the most with our own judgment. Contrary to popular belief, the antidote to feeling weak and impatient, frustrated with ourselves, it isn't to beat ourselves up. It isn't to berate ourselves for where we are or even withhold our deepest needs. Rather, it's granting ourselves more compassion, tenderness, kindness, and curiosity. Thank you, Gina. Listeners, if you're not currently mourning a loss in your life, you certainly will someday. And I hope you find Gina's insights helpful. You can pick up a copy of Moving On Doesn't Mean Letting Go at your favorite bookstore. 
Join me tomorrow when my guest will be Mauro Guillen, who will share insights from his book, The Perennials, The Megatrends Creating a Post-Generational Society. I'm Michael Kavnet. See you tomorrow.